Amen. Well, will you uh, turn with me in your copy of God's Word then to uh, the Gospel according to Matthew? Matthew chapter 13, as we uh, finish up this 13th chapter. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 51 and reading through the end of the chapter. Will you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? This is the word of God. Let's give it our attention. Jesus is speaking. He says, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. As we uh, come to the end of Jesus' parables here, it's good to remind ourselves something about the, the manner and the message of the parables in which Jesus has been speaking Hopefully now, having worked through these parables, we understand what parables are, uh, that they are just short stories drawn from the stuff of everyday life, but that reveal and conceal a deeper spiritual significance. Uh, So we have seen scenes drawn from everything, right? From the first parable uh, in, in farming to the last parable of fishing, And in between, we've considered a tiny mustard seed uh, that at first the birds might try to steal away, but in the end grows into a mighty tree in which the birds find themselves resting. Uh, We've considered the way that wheat and weeds grow up together in the world, and indistinguishably so. We've talked about buried treasure and beautiful pearls. But in telling us all of these stories... Jesus has really been telling us what his kingdom is like. These stories aren't really about farming and fishing and pearls and treasure. They're really about his kingdom. And he has made that point repeatedly. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed seed in his field. Verse 24. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. The kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea. Jesus apparently does not want us to miss the point 
that he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And so however ordinary or commonplace the stories may seem on the surface, they are extraordinary insofar as they reveal the king and his kingdom to us. Uh, But because they're told in this particular way, the parables serve not only to reveal Christ and his kingdom, but they also do this other thing, don't they? They conceal Christ and his kingdom. There's a way of reading the parables so that you miss entirely what Jesus is talking about. You might remember back at the beginning of the... Why do you speak to them in parables? Why, why do you speak in ways that are actually difficult in the parable that he tells to King David? Remember that about the rich man who had all of this land and all of these flocks, and yet he went and stole the one little pet ewe lamb of a poor man so that he could feed it to his guests. And the story is so clearly a parable. It's a parable about David himself, who had so much wealth and power, who had already taken to himself so many wives, and yet in his greed and in his lust, he goes and he steals Uriah, or the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And yet, David's heart is so hard and calloused that he cannot understand that this is about him. He's outraged by the story because his heart has grown dull. It wasn't an intellect problem. It was a heart problem. And now here at the end of the parables, as we come full circle, as Jesus is finishing up his teaching, we see this revealing and concealing playing out in the hearts of people. Uh, This passage is going to transition us to five stories about the way that people respond to Jesus and his teaching. Uh, and so as we look at this passage today, we want to, we want to see this revealing and concealing work of first in the hearts of these understanding scribes. These understanding scribes. And then secondly, we're going to see it at work in these unbelieving skeptics. Understanding scribes and unbelieving skeptics. And as we consider the passage together, uh, we'll consider it under these headings, and then in conclusion, I'll give you just a few ways in which we might, uh, a few take-home things from these parables. So first, consider these understanding scribes. As Jesus finishes up the parables, he asks his disciples, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. Now, obviously, when Jesus asks, have you understood all these things, he's not asking about whether they understand how to go fishing. <laughs> he's, not understanding, uh, he's not asking about whether they understand what farming is about. He, he's asking about the deeper spiritual meaning. He's asking if they understand what he's teaching them about his kingdom. Have they understood that right now Christ is scattering his word throughout the world? And that that word is being scattered far and wide, and in some places it's going to come to fertile reception. But in many places it won't. In many places it's going to be like falling on rocks and among weeds and among the path. In only one quarter of the instances is it actually going to grow up and bear fruit. Have they understood this? 
Have they understood that this is the way the kingdom grows? Have they understood that in the very fields where God's word does find fertile soil, weeds also find fertile soil? And that it's not their job to be about the work of weeding. Have they understood the need for patience in God's kingdom? Have they understood that the kingdom, though it is so seemingly insignificant in its beginning, like a tiny mustard seed, is going to grow into this massive tree in which many will find a home? Have they come to understand the significance of, its, of his kingdom? And in understanding its significance, have they come to understand its value? That it is more inherently valuable than anything else in the world. That it's something to be treasured. Something they should readily and willingly trade every earthly thing for. Have they understood its value? Have they understood that the kingdom will come in stages? This is the stage of gathering and, and not of sorting. But that there will come a day when all things will be sorted out. The righteous from the evil and only the righteous will remain. Have they understood both the splendor and the severity of his kingdom? Have you understood all of these things, Jesus asks them? Have you understood the things I'm teaching you about my kingdom? Have we? In any case, the disciples give this resounding yes. Uh, And though it has been suggested otherwise, I don't think the text gives us any particular reason to challenge the veracity of their answer. Jesus has explained the parables to them. He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. Now it's not like they understand and hear because they're so much more astute and wise that they are so much wiser than the Pharisees. No, they understand because Christ has given them understanding because the Holy Spirit has opened their hearts and minds so that they might hear and see. In fact, he says that they have become now like scribes that have been trained or discipled for the kingdom of heaven. Think about what a scribe is. We don't often think of scribes, but in Jesus' day, there was a whole group of men called scribes. A faithful scribe is what you would call an expert in the Bible. You remember Ezra? Ezra was a scribe, a faithful scribe. In Ezra 7.10, we're told that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. What a wonderful thing to be said about you. That you set your heart to study God's Word, to understand it, and to do it, and to teach it. That's what it means to be a faithful scribe. And that's what Jesus has in mind when He says that His disciples now have become like scribes of the kingdom of heaven. They have been trained. They have been discipled in this way. But you notice that the training is not an end in itself, is it? It's not like the kingdom of heaven, like this is some Gnostic knowledge uh, that is like 
part of a secret Gnostic society. It's knowledge that's meant to be shared. It's meant to be shared so that others, too, might understand and treasure it, too. Every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The disciples are discipled not just for themselves, but for others. You are discipled not just for yourself, but for others. And that is especially true of these first disciples. Jesus said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. I am going to make you the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And if you think about it, this very gospel account that we are reading and contemplating right now is Matthew's scribal work, isn't it? This is the work of a faithful scribe as he recounts and accounts for us the gospel of Jesus Christ bringing out treasures old and new. What does that mean, to bring out treasures old and new? Calvin suggests that these are the varied and manifold dispensation by which the teachers of the church wisely and aptly accommodate the teaching of Jesus to the grasp of the individual. That treasures old and new refers to the ways in which teachers make the gospel plain and give it understanding. And I think that's undoubtedly true. But I think the more natural reading of things new and old is probably a reference to the treasures of both the old and the new covenants. Just think of the many ways and the many times in which Matthew is quoting and interpreting the Old Testament to us in the light of the coming of Christ. Think of the genealogy or the birth narratives, right? Uh, This is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, He will be Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, Think of the temptation narratives. Think about Jesus in the wilderness as a new Israel. Think about all the teaching of, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. Think about all the miracles, all the ways in which Matthew interprets the Old Testament. He's like a master of the house, bringing out treasures, old and new. And that is what every faithful teacher should aspire to do. Every faithful teacher should aspire to be one who sets his heart to understand God's Word, to do it, to teach it, to others. Well, if Matthew was a faithful scribe, it is because he had such a wonderful model faithful scribe. As you look at verse 53, the very things that Jesus says faithful scribes do, we see him then doing, don't we? As he goes from there and he comes to his hometown and he teaches them in the synagogue so that they're astonished. And they're saying, where did this man get his wisdom from and his mighty works? Now, it's, it's not entirely clear from Matthew's gospel uh, which synagogue event this was. It may have be an independent one. Uh, some suggest that this is the one recorded in Luke 4 where Jesus picks up the scroll of Isaiah, right? And he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. And then he says, these things are fulfilled in your hearing today. And then he sits down. 
But whatever he's particularly teaching on in the synagogue, you can be sure he is teaching from some scroll of the Old Testament. Because there was no New Testament. He's reading God's Word and interpreting it to God's people about himself. He's bringing out treasures that are old and new. He is showing them all the ways in which the law and the prophets and the writings are fulfilled in himself, that all of that kingdom is coming to fulfillment in the kingdom of heaven that comes with the king. He's bringing out treasures old and new. But of course, as it so often does, his teaching creates quite a stir. And in this instance, it creates a stir, well, because Jesus is in his own hometown. And that brings us to our final point here, as we move from from understanding scribes to unbelieving skeptics. Uh, We find them asking, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother Mary, uh, aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and aren't all his sisters with us? Where did the carpenter's kid get this training? Which synagogue school was he a part of? Uh, What rabbi was he learning under? Where did he get these things? He's just a woodworker. And they took offense at him. It seems at first like they're going to receive him, right? They're astonished at his teaching. They're astonished at his mighty works. That word astonishment definitely has a positive connotation, but then something changes as they begin to recognize him, as they realize that this is just the carpenter's kid from down the street, the same one who, you know, was planing wood with his dad. We bought our dining room chairs from him. And not only do they know him, they know his entire family. They, they know them well enough to call them all by name, right? All of them. It's like the Van Steenbergs. Can you name all of the Van Steenbergs? You have to know them. They know Jesus. And it's that acquaintance that gives them an offense. It puts them off. We actually, I think, have a perfect expression for this in the English language. Uh, It's an expression that Chaucer gave to us. We say familiarity breeds contempt. That close acquaintance with someone or something leads to an undeserved disdain so often. Why is it that it's so easy to appreciate the beauty of a place you visit on vacation, but you come home and you can't see the beauty of the oak trees and the Spanish moss? Uh, Why is it so easy to applaud the things that others do for us, but not the things that our wife does for us or our children? Why is it so easy to approve and to recognize and value these other things, but the things that are right in front of us, the things that we often should value the most, we don't. Why is it that a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown? Whatever the reason, and I'm not sure I have an answer to that, (laughs) it seems to be a reality, and Jesus proverbially says it is, 
Whatever the reason for it, their familiarity with Jesus leads them to discount his teaching and to disdain his miracles. It's like knowing his family somehow lessens their ability to appreciate and respect his authority. It humanizes him, as Bruner says. Nazareth's mistake, Bruner says, is not that it thinks Jesus human, but it thinks that if he's human, then he can't be the Messiah. Having a family, having a low-income family, having a common family, humanizes Jesus. And yet, isn't that the very glory of Jesus? Think about that. The very thing that they find contemptible is the very thing that makes him glorious. That the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That he moved into the neighborhood. That the God of glory becomes God with us, Emmanuel. In fact, if he doesn't take our humanity to himself, what hope do we have? The Scripture says he had to be made like us in order to bring many sons to glory. The same familiarity that breeds contempt is the same familiarity that is actually the bedrock of the gospel. And yet, as Paul says, he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They take offense at his common humanity. And their skepticism leads to their unbelieving rejection of him, and their unbelieving rejection of him means that he will not do many mighty works among them. Calvin, again, uh, states it beautifully. He says, They're not simply hindered by ignorance, but they deliberately seize hold of offenses so that they may not follow God where he calls. Why is it that Jesus won't do mighty works there? Why is that little phrase added in verse 58? He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, people have interpreted this in different ways. Some have interpreted it to mean that their unbelief somehow prevents Jesus from doing miraculous things. Could that be the case? No. Does Jesus hold a grudge against them? Is Jesus returning evil for evil? I think the explanation is far more simple. And, and I think we can, we can maybe see it a little bit better if we compare it with another instance where Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. In Matthew chapter 12, he was rejected in that synagogue as well. But there we read that though the leaders rejected him, many others followed him and he healed them all. What's the difference? Why is it that Jesus does many, in fact, all the healings here, and does not do many works among them here? It's simply they don't come to him. They don't believe in him. They don't feel their need of him. And therefore, they don't follow after him. If you don't feel your need of Jesus, you will never come to Jesus. I think this may be akin to the way that James reasons about our prayer life. He says, you, you have not because you ask not. 
Sometimes it's just that simple. It's not that Jesus is unable, unready, unwilling. It's sometimes that we just do not follow after him and come to him. And yet, what is the posture of Jesus? Ask. It will be given to you. Seek. You will find. Knock. It will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? May the Lord help us that we would be postured not as unbelieving skeptics, but as understanding scribes. And if you want to know what it means to be understanding, I think you can just flip that word around on its head. It means to stand under. It means to stand under God's teaching, under His Word, to see it as the rule of your life, to see His commands as holy and righteous and good, to see His teaching as that which is necessary for your life. Well, as we close out this 13th chapter and as we close out Jesus' teaching on the parables, I thought it would be good to just leave you with a few big picture thoughts uh, to take away from them. Things to remember about his kingdom. These things are things about his kingdom, and I, I couldn't help but alliterate it for you. So here you go. Here are, here are four things to take away from the parables. His word, his wonder, his wealth, and his warnings. The kingdom word is being sown. And we are not so much the sowers as we are the soil. How will you receive this word? How will you receive the seed that is sown? Are you like the path? Is your heart like rocky soil? Is it like the weeds? Or is it like ready, fertile soil, ready to receive the kingdom and the king and to grow up and bear good fruit? Like the Catechism says, the way that we should respond to the Word of God is to receive it with faith and love, to lay it up in our hearts, and to practice it in our lives. That's what it means to be good soil. The kingdom word. The parables should secondly give us a sense of wonder at the kingdom. Wonder. The same way that we wonder that that tiny seed has power within itself to take over and become this massive plant. Uh, the same way that we wonder at the way that a little leaven will spread throughout and leaven the whole lump so that it rises. The kingdom of Christ is growing, unstoppably growing. It doesn't always feel like that, and it doesn't always look like that. But Jesus, in these parables, tells us to wonder at the kingdom expansion. Third, I think the parables should teach us to treasure the wealth of the kingdom. The wealth of the kingdom. It's a treasure that far surpasses every earthly thing. Think again of the way that Paul writes about it. 
that he gives up everything else for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. The king himself is the treasure. He is the wealth. But in him we receive all these other blessings, right? The forgiveness of sins, adoption into his family, conformity to his likeness, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, and on and on and on. All of these things come to us in union with Christ. Would we not value Christ and the wealth of the kingdom above every other earthly thing? And finally, I think the parables teach us to heed the warnings of the king. To heed his warnings. Our king is just. And he tells us that he is going to execute justice. The parables of the weeds and of the dragnet make that clear, right? Now is the time for gathering, not the time of sorting. But there will come a time of sorting. And Jesus says that the evil will be sorted out from the righteous and thrown into a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm not going to preach last week's sermon again, but that is about as grave and sobering a statement as you will find in the Bible. A place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place of eternal punishment for those who do not receive the King. And yet, Jesus does not come with threats. When he says these these things, it's not a threat. It is a warning. If someone puts a sign at the edge of a cliff, it's not a threat. It's a warning. And Jesus is warning you. He did not come to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. He came to save the world in order that the world through him might be saved. To as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God. He warns us in order that we might believe, that we might come to him, that we might look to him, that we might be understanding scribes, that we might not perish but have eternal life. The parables both conceal and they reveal. You know, it's interesting. There's another place in the New Testament where the people say all these same things. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother Mary? Aren't his brothers James? And aren't all of his sisters with us? And they grumble about him. It's in John chapter 6. And do you know what Jesus' response there is? He says, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. But as many as, as many as come to me, I give them life and am the bread of life. This is the day not of sorting, but of gathering. And I would lay before you the words of the psalm Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not be like that path or the rocky soil, but be that fertile soil. Come to Christ as many as come to him. As the, if the Father is drawing you, and so many of you he has already drawn, but if the Father is drawing you, look to Christ and become a scribe, discipled for the kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. 
Almighty God, as we read Your Word, as we contemplate the things You have taught us about Your kingdom, Lord, we ask that You would indeed, by Your Holy Spirit, give us understanding, that we would stand under Your Word, that we would not posture ourselves against Your Word, that we would not try to explain it away or, or reason that it's unjust or cruel, but that we would see that You have come to save. To, and, and to that end, You warn. But you, you call all men to Yourself. Now is the day of salvation. Lord, we pray that we would respond in faith and love, that we would lay up Your Word in our hearts, that we would practice it in our lives, that we would receive Your Word, that we would wonder at the Gospel, that we would treasure its wealth, and that we would heed Your warnings. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And as you're seated now, you know that you are seated at the Lord's table. This table where He calls us uh, together to assure us of His love and kindness and grace. And He uses these sensible signs, right? That is, signs that you can taste and touch and see and smell. These very physical ways in which He condescends to help our faith and encourage our faith. Uh, because here we can see His body and His blood these pictures and symbols of our salvation. And as these symbols come to us, right, they come to us broken. The bread comes to you broken. Jesus said on the night in which He was betrayed, this is My body given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. The wine, as it comes to you, it comes to you poured out. Uh, Jesus said, this is the new covenant in My blood. Drink from it for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, it's not that, that this bread and this wine somehow forgive our sins. It's that Jesus forgives our sins. And as we in faith participate in this meal, as truly as our bodies will digest and eat this bread and wine, so truly is Christ received and all of the benefits and blessings of His salvation if we receive Him with faith and love. And so if you love Christ and you are here and ready to receive Him in faith, if you're sorry for your sins and you desire a, a, a life of obedience and thankfulness to God, if you belong to His church, if you're a baptized, professing member of the church of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, and if you are, are, are walking in, in faithfulness with the Lord, not perfect faithfulness, of course, but in faithfulness, then you may come and find the assurance that you need here today. But if any of those things are not true of you, if you do not love Christ, if you do not belong to His church, if, if you have not been baptized in His name, if you do not confess Him, then this meal actually is a warning to you. It's not a threat, but it's a warning. What it pictures is your death. It pictures what your sins deserve. And so even as we partake of this meal, receive the warning and heed it. But it is not a warning to those who trust in Christ. For you, it is God's marvelous, beautiful, bountiful gift of grace. 
For you, it is to strengthen your resolve. For you, it is to strengthen your uh, desire to follow after Christ. And if you receive it in faith, let's ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements now and set them apart for this holy use. Lord, as we come to this table, we know, we know as sure as we know anything else that we do not deserve a seat at your table. And yet, Lord, we would desire to pick up the crumbs that fall from it. But you invite us to pull up a chair and you give us your own body and your own blood to remind us that you have done all things necessary for our salvation. That you have exchanged your perfect life of righteousness for our wretched lives. That you have paid the penalty that our sins deserve. And that this meal is a symbol and token of that. And so, Lord, we pray that you would grant us even the faith to eat and drink. Because, Lord, we are our consciences are worn. We hear the accusations of the devil in our ears. Lord, would you shout deliverance even through this meal? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.